The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Ready to be inspired, uplifted, and motivated to greatness? It's time for Star Style. Be the star you are. With your effervescent personal growth coaches, the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and health specialist, Heather Brittany. Define your vision, discover your passion, and design your future in this power-packed hour of life-changing talk radio. Featuring authors and success experts dedicated to helping you achieve the results you deserve. Be entertained, edutained, encouraged, and empowered. Smile, have fun, and celebrate you. Explore your potential and embrace your possibilities with your hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany on Star Style. Be the star you are, starting right now. It is party time here on the Hour of Power. It's Star Style B, the star you are. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are excited to be your personal growth success coaches here on the airwaves with you every week because we do know you have a plan for your life. You've set goals. You know where you want to go. And we want to help you get there because you can fix what's broken, heal what's hurt, and become the person you were born to be. The Miracle Moment is brought to you by Star Style Productions, coaching you for writing, speaking, and media interviews. Call 925-377-STAR or visit StarStyleProductions.com to book your session and be the star you are. And this is from Ella Fitzgerald, jazz singer. Just don't give up trying to do what you really want to do. Where there's love and inspiration, you can't go wrong. Very good quote by a very great singer. Well, today's show is going to be about health, history, and inspiration. Coming right up, Heather's going to provide some simple tips to fight the flu. In segment two, co-writer, producer, and director of the film Tapping the Source, Richard Greninger, joins us as we launch a free screening for all. And we're going to go around the world in 80 days in segment three with author Matthew Goodman, but with Two historic female characters that may you may not have heard about. And it's a very, very exciting adventure. So sit back and enjoy the program. Flu season. Well, this year it seems to have been longer than ever. And just when you think you've finally gotten over that bad bug, the coughing, the hacking, and the aching just hits you again. And even if you got a flu shot this year, it has only been proven to be effective on 62% of the recipients. So besides just locking yourself up in your room or not seeing anyone for six months, what can you do to keep the germs at bay? So in Health Matters, Heather, of course, is going to give us a few more tools that you may not have considered that could make all the difference. So Heather, you know, I got a flu shot this year like I do every year, and I'm happy to say I am one of the fortunate people 
I have not been affected by this bad flu, but just about everyone I know has been knocked on their backs for weeks from this horrendous strain. And and sometimes they're just getting recurring, you know, recurring bouts of it. So what's up and what can we do as we near the end of the flu cycle? Yeah, well, about five to twenty to five to twenty percent um, of Americans will get the flu every year, and I actually have to say this is the first time in about six years I did not get a flu shot this year, and I did not get the flu. Um, however, last well, year that's I a did, really good thing. That's good. Well, however, you know, and a really interesting thing about flu shots um, is again they're always important. Uh, you know, working in healthcare, I was required to get them. Every year, and last year when I got it, because what the, the vaccine itself is a dead virus, um, and sometimes as, as people's reaction to it is that you get flu-like uh, symptoms. And I actually, for the first time last year, when I got the, the shot within two days, um, I was home for about a week because I had basically I gave myself the flu with the shot. Um, that wasn't thing, fun. That was really bad. Yeah, and something that a lot of people don't realize when we think. Flu, you know, we think winter time, so we always think, you know, um, a lot of time they start releasing the flu vaccine usually in October. Um, there used to be this thing at school thing that was called "Say Boo to the Flu," and in October they run a big thing for it. But um, flu season typically peaks between January and February, so just uh, we're right sort of in the tail end of that right now. Um, and the getting the flu vaccine is your best protection against it. But again, there's always so many. Uh, prior things you can do to it, just on an everyday basis. Uh, what a lot of people are um, misunderstand, I think, is that the flu, it's a virus, not a bacteria. And so many times people think, um, you know, we think about we think of antibacterial, you know, taking um, an antibacterial drug, and that's not going to help you with it. Um, you need to take an antiviral, and a lot of times those aren't um, rapidly available for you. Um, sometimes, too, a mistake is when people start hacking up you know, that green stuff, they think it's an infection, yet not necessarily. Sometimes what's happened over time is we're getting these super bacteria that people have taken so many um, antibiotics and antibiotics that your body is building up tolerance to things over time, so they're having a harder time uh, to treat things. Um, when it comes to it, just sort of our, you know, everyday things to help avoid uh, coming in contact with the flu is the basic thing is always, we always say wash your hands is often as possible with soap and warm water. Those antibacterials, um, which I'm obsessed with, I'm always using, are fantastic. But something to keep in mind is they do take off the good microbacterials from your hands. So your hands sometimes are even more exposed after using those bacteria. And a I lot didn't of them, realize that. So you mean you do, sometimes it's just better soap and water is better? Exactly. Soap and definitely soap and warm water. And it sounds crazy, but they, as a kind of a rule of thumb, it's washing your hands for the amount of time um, it would take you to sing happy birthday. Seems like a long time. I have to say, honestly, I don't wash my hands that long. That's why I love those antibacterials. You just pump it on. Um, but just to be careful about it, something if you're going to be priorly exposed, um, if you're someone that in your house that's been sick, make it a point of cleaning everything. And just as a safe thing, cleaning the house, um, you know, taking those kitchen sprays, well, a lot of times they make ones now that are antibacterial, antiviral, um, that are beyond just, you know, having bleach in it. So beyond just, you know, cleaning every day, cleaning all your surfaces, if someone's in the house, clean the things that you may not realize. Cleaning that, um, if you have a house telephone, 
cleaning doorknobs. Um, one of the biggest things people uh, miss, uh, don't really con- don't really think about, is cleaning. Um, you know, the remote control for the TV. How many hands touch that? That one is really a huge one, isn't it? I think the phone and the remote controls are probably two of the biggest ones, and maybe magazines and newspapers. And and I think, too, I mean, I just recently, my fiance was really sick, and he's still kind of suffering from a lingering, you know, really bad cough going on. But for a long time, he was just like an elephant, just blowing his nose all day long. And so I think a lot of people, again, don't realize even if you're putting them into a trash can in the bathroom, most times they're sitting there for a long time. Bacteria are going to build up. Viruses can stay alive for a long time on surfaces. So make sure they're going into a closed container trash, something that's going to be taken out daily. You don't want to have those things around you. Again, there's almost like a cross-contamination that can happen with it. Um, one thing, too, a really important thing is if, in fact, you are sick, is to stay home for at least 24 hours until a, a, what do you call it, until a fever has broken. A lot of times people, you know, we go to, we have this whole thing and we'll go to, we'll go to work sick. I mean, we almost feel bad that, oh, you know, I can't miss work. And it's not until sometimes we're even asked. I know I've actually been asked to go home before because I was so sick. Um, but I just thought, you know, I need to, what's happening, especially in this close uh, spaces, is you can't, um, you're getting other, there's possibly you can get other people sick. And oftentimes, it can take several days for symptoms to occur when someone has, in fact, come in contact uh, with the virus. So just out of, you know, courtesy and not prolonging this to other people, don't go to work, don't go to school. Stay kind of almost, you know, confine yourself from other people for that short being. Also, you know, wash bed sheets and hot water after, you know, once, once you're no longer smelling up them from being sick. Um, again, that's just anyone else that's around it can get sick from it. Something, too, that a lot of people uh, don't consider is, you know, who is exactly at most at risk for it. Again, a recommendation that everyone should get the flu vaccine, but the elderly as well as infants. Infants are at an extremely high risk, uh, risk because they have no built-up immune system. So talk to your doctor first if it's, you know, healthy. If they have um, things that are not even shots anymore, they're just an inhalant. Um, the kids, they they, kind of, they sniff it in because um, you know, a lot of you know, little babies don't like shots. But talk to find out, um, you know, who knows at risk and if there's ways to get uh, a safer vaccine for your child. Something, too, that's good to know is that if you get the flu one time, you know, this year, it is very unlikely that you're going to get the flu again. Sort of like you got it once out of your system, you should be good. So be aware that there are multiple flus that do go out, um, different strands that do go out throughout the year. So you could, you may have gotten over one, but you could get the next one. So um, how, when they actually make their vaccines every year, they're kind of various strands from the previous years. They kind of, uh, the CDC almost kind of guesstimates that this is what's going to be out there. Um, but again, just kind of keep, uh, keep in mind that, you know, if you've had it once, you're probably in, in the clear, but there is always possibility. Well, I have a question there about getting yeah. it because I know so many people who've had it like three times this year. So is it is it that they're not getting over it the first time or they're going back to work or they're going to a party and they're shaking hands with somebody and they're getting a different flu? I mean, because you can, you can get the same strain, right? Or do you build up well, antibodies you, to this? Well, no, it's strain? very rare for you to get the same strain again. 
Um, it's almost it's almost like you've built up an antibiotic. Sort of, sort of like saying with chicken pox, if you got it once, it's very rare that you get it again. Um, if you, but there are common things. There are um, what do you call? It? There are different strands. And a lot of times too, we very uh, loosely use the word flu. A lot of times we may have even in you know, the stomach flu isn't technically the flu, um, and that's something a lot of times you know diarrhea, upset stomach, vomiting. That isn't. Uh, part of the common cold, uh, really. That is, you know, a stomach virus. Uh, okay, we well, you know it. what? Tell us what actually is the flu, then, that's going around. Is it more of a cough and a fever and chills? And so, uh, usually common, you know, things, and that a lot of people, so it's usually uh, what it is, is congestive respiratory. So when it, so that's why people get really bad coughs, Really high fevers. If they don't, you know, get enough rest, it can actually lead uh, to pneumonia. Um, you know, people experience dehydration, sore throats, earaches. It's really um, more of a respiratory, a respiratory issue. And the big thing we want to say is that people not taking care of themselves, um, they may not be originally again getting over that common one. We're in such a rush to to get back to work, to get back to school. We're not giving ourselves enough rest. And you know when your body is working on very little energy. When you're sick, your body is putting all its energies, all your antibodies are trying to fight back. So that's why you feel so physically drained, so exhausting, because your body is devoting all its energy to try to fight the virus and try to fight bacteria. So what often happens is we're not staying home. We're, you know, I've got to do this paper. I've got to go to work. And we, we have a very weak immune system, which is allowing us to come in contact and get sicker or not get over things. Um, very much so what can happen is people will get bacterial pneumonia, and then things can become, uh, you know, bronchitis, uh, you can, things linger on for so long, and that's when they become chronic conditions where you start having those long periods of cough. And, those and that's when it becomes dangerous. You get pneumonia and you get scar tissue and then you'll continue getting pneumonia. What is the average number of days that it takes the flu to go through the body? Well, something interesting is that it can go anywhere three to seven days. So your body's fully kind of go, but you can still be feeling the, uh, symptoms of it, you know, usually you can start to feel things about a day before symptoms, and symptoms will usually last five to seven days after. Um, however, you, know, you may have lingering things for a long time if you don't take care of yourself. The biggest thing is once you, you know, once you feel that you're getting sick, stay home. The biggest thing is rest and making sure you get plenty of fluids. Our bodies become incredibly dehydrated. And with that lack of water, our electrolytes get way out of proportion. Um, and we, again, we just are making ourselves thicker. So the biggest thing, stay home. Hot liquids are great, a good tea, and rest. Rest is a huge thing. I cannot say how many times I've been sick. And finally, I, you know, you, it's amazing that you say, oh, my God, I slept 14 hours. And you finally feel at rest. Your body needs it. A lot of well, this was wonderful. Day. This is really, really helpful, Heather. Helpful information and probably a little chicken soup, too, if you, uh, you know, if you, exactly. can, if you can have chicken soup will really help. Thank you for these tips. We hope that everybody stays healthy. Would you give out the website? Most definitely. We want you to go to BeTheStaryYard.org as well as BeTheStaryYard.com. Okay, well, great segment. We hope that you are kept away from the ravages of the flu, but 
at least now you know what to do and just keep washing your hands. And what I'm noticing a lot now, too, Heather, is going into business meetings and people don't shake hands anymore. It's like yes. we stand there and we say, we, you know, we kind of nod, let's say hello, because we're all afraid of getting the flu. Well, when we return from break, we're going to talk with the co-author of the book, Tapping the Source, who is also the co-producer and directed the award-winning documentary film, Tapping the Source, Richard Granger, coming up. So stay with us here on Star Style. Be the star you are. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Bittany. And we'll be right back. Don't go away. The star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. Be the star you are. Light up the flame that burns. Get a positive prescription for living and discover a cure for adversity when you make a difference in the lives of others by donating to Be The Star You Are, a 501c3 top-rated charity dedicated to empowering women, families, and youth through increased literacy, positive media, and tools for living. www.bethestarur.org All donations are tax-deductible. www.bethestarur.org Be the lucky star Are you a teenager with lots to say but no one to talk to? Let your creativity explode and your voice be heard on the radio program Express Yourself, a show by teens, for teens, and about teens. No topic is off limits as you connect with teens with attitude. Check out Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel and join our global community where teens talk and the world listens. www.btsya.com. You can express yourself. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Be the star you are, you are the star. Get ready to be inspired, entertained, and motivated to greatness with positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Turn up the volume. Tune in to the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Now, back to the program with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. You'll find all you need. Well, thank you for staying with us where the world comes to talk and listen. This is Star Style, Be the Star You Are, brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are 501c3 charity. To keep this upbeat and life-enhancing broadcast on the air, make a donation today by going to btsya.org. My name is Cynthia Bryan. I'm your personal growth coach here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and I am thrilled that you stayed with us. Thank you so much. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being featured in the award-winning documentary film, Tapping the Source, that also featured such motivational celebrities like Jack Canfield, Bob Proctor, Neil Donald Walsh, uh, Kathy Lee Crosby, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, Mariel Hemingway, many, many others, and was narrated by William Gladstone. 
Well, Richard Graniger was the co-author of the book, Tapping the Source, with Gail Newhouse and Bill Gladstone. They co-produced the film version, and Richard was also the director. Now, he's been shooting photos since he was like six years old. He also directed this film around the world. He has more in the works. And for the next two weeks, just for all of you uh, out there listening, we're going to be offering a private free screening of this remarkable film. And Richard is here with us. He's offered to come on the show, talk about his background as well as his journey in creating the Tapping the Source movement. Hello and welcome, Richard, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Well, how are you? How are you? I'm glad to be here. And I love the title of your show. It's really cool. I know. It's very much like Tapping the Source, isn't it? Be the star (laughs) you are. I mean, you know, hello. We are all like shooting stars. We all have the power to be the writers, producers, directors, and stars of our own lives. So that's what this is. Well, both Bill Gladstone and Gail Newhouse have graced our airwaves. So it is really a thrill, Richard, to finally get you. We've got the entire trinity now. So (laughs) I want to hear, because you have a great background, before we talk directly about Tapping the Source and then all these other exciting projects you have going, your passion for photography started when you were just a little boy, maybe around six, and um, you've said that you were using your dad's World War II camera. Tell us about your beginnings and what you did through high school and, you know, how you came to what you're doing now and, of course, your teaching film and editing and all those great things. But give us a little bit of your background because it's very fascinating. Well, I think what's interesting and maybe your your, uh, your uh, listeners can maybe uh, pick up on is that when you find a passion path, if you will, life becomes kind of interesting because you've got something to hang on. And uh, back in the day when I was very young, about six, seven years old, my dad took me out to the, to the garage. We kind of lived in the garage in those days. Kids played outside. They ran around the hills and we got dirty and full of grease and we fixed cars and but my dad had the classic garage with the gray workbench you know and the fluorescent tubes hanging over over the top of it you know and above the tubes was a couple shelves with dust on them and then there were some boxes so one day he brought me into the to the garage he said I want to give you some I said okay and he pulls one of these boxes down from above the fluorescent tubes and blows it off and opens it up and says this is the camera that I went through World War II with, the folding retina camera Kodak. He said, I think he said, I'm going to qualify this. He's 94 right now. He lives down the street, so I have to be careful what I say. But <laughs> yeah, he's listening right now, right? <laughs> okay. But if I remember what he said, something in the nature of, this is the only time machine that man ever built. It stops time. And I think you'll like the call of it. Wow, that's very, that was very cool. That's a, that's yeah. really a very, very deep thought that he gave you. That, I mean, if uh, that didn't pique your interest, what would, right? I, I know, and yeah, I just thought it was fun, and I started taking pictures and the silly stuff we did, and I wound up uh, carrying it with me and bought some new ones, you know, through the journey through high school, this high school photographer, you know, I'm the, I'm the geek pushing the projector down the hallway, the green bell and how from room to room I did that, so I didn't have to go to class. It was better that way, you know. But that's kind of what we turned into, and then uh, then I went to junior high school, junior college, you know, and uh, I kind of made a decision at that time that this is something that really captivated me. I was going to be a veterinarian. I couldn't get through chemistry, so I went back to photography. <laughs> you know, so, it's interesting how our passion leads us back to our passion. I mean, we may think we want to do something else or somebody else mm-hmm. tells us we want to do something else, but finally it comes to what we're really good at and what we have fun doing. 
Well, I think that's the key to all these efforts we all have made for so long, this personal development stuff, you know, that we're all trying to either better ourselves, make ourselves happier, you know, make it better. And so much of us need it. And I said, well, gee whiz, you know, how are we going to make that better? So I felt communicating was kind of a, a way to do it. And I remember this, 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 yesterday I walked down to the corner of Sunset and Vine about 10 o'clock at night in Hollywood. And I looked around and I had looked up the day before how many producers and directors there were in the director's field. Well, you know, I think there were like 1,800 of them. And I said a little prayer. I said, Dear Lord Jesus, because, you know, I didn't only another director producer here. I, I got that real clear. But if you let me do this, I will someday try to make a difference in the world with what I do. And that's where I started. It was kind of interesting. I went down to the Art Center College of Design for about a year and a half and got bored with that and opened my first office when I was 16, not for 18. And uh, for 75 bucks a month, I had a little office at Wilshire Boulevard and that's where we began. See, your dreams come true. I, and I think part of it is when you were very clear what you wanted in that prayer that you said that day. You know, mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. what you wanted to do. Well, you mm-hmm. also, you started filming motivational speakers at uh-huh. their shows. And this is when you really realized how much you loved teaching, that it's also a passion of yours. And you were like the top provider of production crews, right, for people mm-hmm. like uh, Tony Robbins and, you know, major, major people. How did that influence you in that whole motivational spirit? Because what you're about is making a difference in the world and being inspirational mm-hmm. and encouraging and, and all of that. And so you actually were working in that genre, doing what you love in filming these people. Did it inf- influence, you know, more what you wanted, like in making this movie, Tapping the Source? Well, I think it's, it solidified it in that... Uh it was a dual thing that happened. I was in Puerto Rico working for Telemundo at the time, and uh, I came back home, and they had invented this thing called a video projector. I'd never seen one before. And technology. And I go, wow, that's kind of cool. Wow. You know? <laughs> and we were at the Century Plaza Hotel, way up high where they had the spotlights, and they had this huge projector that was water-cooled at the time, called the Teleria 2000, and they made projection from video. And I go, wow. So what happened, the, the uh, hotel ballrooms became theaters. And at that time, the Tony Robbins of the world took advantage, took advantage of that and made their, their schoolrooms those large ballrooms. And that's where this industry started. It's kind of intriguing instead of technical point. And then uh, uh, I met a guy named Bernie Dorman, who owned, at the time, uh, uh, the IBI Income Builders International, now CEO stage. And uh, I was on a crew, you know, just on a, a crew with audiovisual headquarters, and I went down to work on his show and I kind of liked what he was doing and we kind of bonded and started working on our shows you know he did six shows a year and 200 people you know entrepreneurial stuff and I got caught up in the the, the stories the, the life changing stories that were coming out of that and uh, we became great friends and I produced the shows uh, for six years uh, six shows a year and traveled the world a bit with them and then uh, some of the people at his show um, Carolyn McCormick and she's around she was working for Tony Robbins as a number number two girl, you know, headsets on, on, on the slide events. And she knew they were looking for another producer, and so she introduced him to Tony Robbins. And we were doing a very similar-looking show, uh, IBI, and Tony was doing a similar show with the same kind of music and the same kind of sets and everything. So it was a natural. So we went on to work with Tony Robbins, produced Life Mastery in Hawaii for three years, and my partner went on for many years later. 
and I wanted a different type of people. But I met most of my people through Bernie Dorman and through Mark Victor Hansen, who Mark Victor Hansen had this producer for 25 years. He did these shows called Mega, Mega, Mega Book, Mega, Mega. Uh, writing. And they were fabulous and, you know, thousands yeah. of people would come. I mean, because, yeah, it was yeah. all about being mega, mega great. That's right. And I met all the speakers. I met Jack and Mark before they became famous, you know, and they were teaching at IBI and, and that's where we became friends. So through that, those connections, like Mark always says, your network is your net worth, you know, uh, that's really it started. And through my connection with Mark Victor Hansen and Jack and Bernie Dorman, that's really I built my network. Well, and you wrote a little book called Richard's Little Happy Book, Seven Powerful Principles to Create a Happier Life for the Rest of Your Life, which you wrote that before you started, or maybe you were working on the Tapping the Source book at the same time? No, it was when, first. It was first. That yeah. was first. Okay. Okay. So that, so, but then you moved on from that little book to working on... Tapping the source. How did you get involved with that? Well, it's interesting. It's kind of a multiple story. And again, your, your listeners out there can take, take a cue, too. I'm not a writer, although I've found that I can write pretty decent. I guess kind of wells up and it kind of comes out. But I was inter- interviewing one of my jobs at Bernie's shows and Mark's shows, was interviewing people like yourself after the show, during the show, at the breaks, asking the, the quintessential questions, why are you here and what are you getting out of this thing, you know? Well, I discovered I was... You know, seen the same people over and over again, you know, like year after year. And it kind of got my intrigue. I kind of intrigued by it. I said, wait a minute. Aren't you listening up here? Why are you quite come? Would you miss something? And as I really took a look at that arena of learning, I found out, kind of discovered that things weren't being taught that they really wanted. They weren't getting what they wanted. Therefore, they kept coming back to find something, and they would look for this something and buying a house, Flipping a car, um, real estate, author estate, buying, writing books, et cetera, et cetera. But really, all they were looking for was happiness. Right. That's the core, isn't it? Love and happiness. Yeah. So I wrote Richard's little happy book. It's a 19 pages. It's a fun book. You sit down and read in about an hour, half an hour. And it has those principles in there that I found were simple. You know, having a good traveling was important. Having a good sex life, you know. About sex, it sort of pounds human beings into the ground, you know. Having a good health. Little spirituality never hurt, you know, and not a lot of downside to it. Uh, so those kind of things I said in the book, I says, you know what, if you're unhealthy, it's hard as hell to be happy, you know. It's no, that's so true. I mean, when you're not yeah. feeling well, it puts you yeah. in a bad mood. And if you're in a bad <laughs> mood, you're not happy, and then people around you aren't happy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like a domino effect. So there's yeah. so many things that lead to happiness, but health is definitely right up there. Oh, yeah. And you download that book on Amazon. It's a fun, fun little book. and. It's a great gift to give somebody, you know, just 19 pages now. It's the toilet book, I guess you'd call it, a bathroom book, you know. Yeah, but you know what, Richard, these days I really believe that the, the shorter the book and the more yep. poignant it is, you know, the better it is because we all live such hectic, fast-paced lives, especially with technology. And, you know, you have Twitter and all these things now that you've got to get everything done and 142 characters or whatever. So I think short is good. Well, I think you're absolutely correct. That's a good cue for your listeners that uh, Tapping the Source is about an hour and ten minutes. I recut it down to an interesting show called The Maze, which is on, it's on YouTube, too. I took 18 of the best of the best and recut it. It's kind of, kind of cool. It's called Tapping the Source, The Maze. You can take a look at it. It's kind of cool. 
But the situation is that people are not looking at long form. So those who want to have impact in the world need to take a look at the theater they're going to be playing in. Is it an iPad? Yes. Is it a bike smartphone? Mm-hmm. Is it a computer on a laptop? Probably not. Is it a DVD? Uh, no. Is it a file? Yes. So I think you got to look at that criteria and say, okay, now where is my theater? And who's watching? And how much time will it give me to get the message? And you discover it's very short. Very short. Are you finding it's getting shorter too, Richard? Because I just remember YouTube where you used to go there and you would watch 10 minute videos. And yeah. then it, you know, then it's eight, seven. Now, if you see a training video or anything that's more than 60 seconds, you usually don't even watch it. So are you Correct. finding too that we're getting shorter and shorter spans? Without question. Uh, uh, it, it's a part of the, New culture that the young, youngins have. It's what I call a head down society. Their heads are down looking at the iPad, iPod, iTunes, whatever it is, but they aren't looking at you. Uh, Michael Beckwith, who's in our movie, said we are in a low touch, high tech society. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's actually sad because, you know, with, with, there's a lot of Facebook, but there's not any face to face. And I find right. that all the time when I'm coaching kids is that they've got all their little gadgets going and it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. put them away. <laughs> put them away. <laughs> you know, you, we have 20 minutes to do something and you, you're texting and wait. Well, well it's interesting. It's a bit of an addiction to, um, hard to put in exact words, but there's an addiction to being lonesome. There's uh, a, to be not lonesome. In other words, to be in a room with about your iPhone, iPad, you're going to get pretty disconnected from your folks, your people, your peeps, your Twitters. Your, and people don't know how to handle themselves by themselves. It's very interesting. So there's an addiction to being connected all the time so you have something to fall back on emotionally, spiritually, or verbally and stay out of the arena that you're currently in in the present and the now. Well, you know, I hope that it changes back because, like, for me, I feel the best when I'm in nature. You know, put me in the barnyard, put me with a bunch of flowers, whatever, and I feel really great. But when we're just connected to technology, we're not really connecting with our soul. So I mean, it might make you happy in the short term, but what happens when, when the, you know, your battery goes dead or what? I mean, my goodness. Well, yeah, you make a good point, and I think that's what the discovery will be. It will not go back to long form. It, it won't. Like they say, uh, once the mind's expanded, it can't shrink back to the, you know, to what you were right. before. And the same right. with your wallet. You know, it's hard, and uh, it's not going to go back. I think it will change form. I think you'll find things niching up that people are interested in, say, the tapping the source or interested in games. They will have their own communities that will have certain requirements or demands that to participate, this is what they need to do. But it will not be the generic every sitting on read newspapers. That ain't going to happen again. We're done with that. It's over. Well, I want to give out the website for Tapping the Source, which is tappingthesourcemovie.com. But also, you are, just tell us quickly, because we're running out of time, Richard, you're Mm -hmm. working on another book with Gail. And I think it's an important book, Memories of Heaven. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, interesting enough, I'll keep it as short as I can. I was doing a large show with a bunch of folks that were midwives, you know, crazy. And I was on the show working, and I heard these stories from these doctors and PhDs and that were midwifery, midwives, and they talked about these young children that had memories from the age of about five to about 
well, between the ages of three to six, they had memories of where they came from. Huh? Very strange. This is crazy. But time and time again, story after story, these children seem to have friends with them that they made friends with here on this earth. And we've talked about, you know, little girls have their little girlfriends they talk to quietly. Turns out that in other other worlds, they're called the angels that have brought them here to, to earth. And at about five or six years old, the angels go back and they, their friends disappear. So I looked at that and I said, what a cool thing that would be. Wow, if you could kind of prove that, would be kind of cool. Like memories of heaven. Hmm. And that's where it came from. I didn't get it completed because I couldn't get the stories from the children. It just was too hard. They were too tainted by their families. So I put it aside. And about a year ago, we pulled it out off the drawer and I said, Memories of Heaven, the near-death experience, is just as powerful and maybe more so. Because in Path in the Source, the movie, we interviewed five people that had near-death experiences, serious ones, and the dots were very, very connected and they didn't know each other. They had the light, they had the deep love, they had the sense that it's going to be fine, and uh, it started to put that out there. That wow, this is cool. So in the book, Memories of Heaven, we have 17 near-death experiences, that I think will kind of twist your head around with them when you read them from a young girl who was shot in the face by a cop that changed the whole Rampart Police Division when they discovered what happened uh, to people that have uh, had these experiences. And they were stunned that they were in this place of warmth and love. I call it the human body's ejection system. A lot of people uh, have a trouble with the world and they go into shock, you know, like an accident. And I think that's just the mind to the body. I'm getting the hell out of here. Well, we'll look forward to this next book, Memories Mm -hmm. of Heaven. And in the meantime, we're going to send people to watch the movie, Mm -hmm. which is tappingthesourcemovie.com. And people can go to starstyleradio.com to get a special link if you want it for a a free movie private screening. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. just go to tappingthesourcemovie.com. And Richard, I'm sorry we're out of time. Obviously, you have a lot good, lot to talk about, and we didn't even get to your teaching at Ch- uh, Chapman University uh, College. But thank you very much, and congratulations on it. Took 37 years to get back there, but there you are. <laughs> I love that. I think that is just fantastic. So, uh, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Tapping the movie, uh, tapping the source movie dot com. And when My we pleasure. Look it was to come great. Back anytime. Thank you, Richard. And when we Thanks, come honey. back from break, we are going to circumnavigate the globe with two adventurous women that were in the Victorian age. And I wonder if you even know about them. It's 80 Days with author Matthew Goodman coming right up. Don't go away. The star you are. The star you Looking for unique, one-of-a-kind gifts for the special woman in your life? The Carmony Collection creates handmade handbags, clutches, candles, and canvases from vintage and recycled fabrics, bangles, and beads. Be eco-friendly and fashionable with prices for all pocketbooks. Visit www.carmonycollection.com. That's Carmony with a K and Collection with a K. Or call 925-785-7827. 
Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature star-style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7888. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com You can be the star you are. Be the star you are. You are the star. Turn up the volume, grab a seat, and get ready to be challenged, inspired, and motivated to greatness. It's power party time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your hosts, the mother-daughter dynamic duo, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Well, thank you so much for still staying here with me, Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are. We bring you the authors, the experts, and the pioneers on the planet. The recipient of two McDowell Fellowships and one Yotto Fellowship, Matthew Goodman, is the author of the new historical adventure, 80 Days, as well as the author of two other nonfiction books, The Sun and the Moon, the remarkable true account of hoaxer, showman, dueling journalist, and lunar man, Bats in 19th Century New York, and Jewish Food, The World at Table. He has taught creative writing at various universities and workshops, and today he is here with us to discuss the two female adventurers who followed in the footsteps of Jules Verne, fictitious Phineas Fogg, in a race to circumnavigate the globe in less than 80 days. Welcome, Matthew, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Oh, thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm delighted to be here. Well, this is an extraordinary true tale of two very, very different and very brave young American women living during the Victorian age. And I must admit, I had never heard of either of them. <laughs> and th- that really shocks me because especially one of the women, Nellie Bly, who is probably personally responsible for all these celebrity endorsements and everything that we see today because she became so famous in 1889. It's amazing how quickly, you know, the the famous fall from, I don't want to say fall from grace, but fall from the front pages. First, let's start with what was your impetus for writing this saga? And you did such a tremendous amount of research. Uh, Tell us about your journey. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, I had sort of... I had heard of Nellie Bly. Um, she was from New York, and or she was working in New York as a journalist. And I'm from New York, and she's kind of known in New York. In fact, in Brooklyn, where I live, there's an old, there was the old Nellie Bly amusement park. So I sort of knew her as the namesake of this uh, amusement park. And I knew she was a journalist, but I didn't really know much about her. And I, I knew that I wanted for my next book to write about uh, a female character. And I kind of stumbled across a reference to Nellie Bly, and I kind of vaguely knew who she was, knew she was a journalist. And I investigated it, and I found out that she wasn't just any journalist. She was really an amazing journalist, you know, a kind of female journalist that no one had ever seen before. No, no female journalist, this is in the 1880s, no female journalist had ever been as audacious as Nellie Bly, had ever been so willing to risk her personal safety, uh, in pursuit of a story. She was an investigative reporter for Joseph Pulitzer's 
newspaper called The World, which was the largest newspaper in New York at that time, and she specialized in undercover stories. I know so when it, you when you wrote about her going into that insane asylum, right. I actually got shivers because all I could think about is once she was in there, how was she going to get out? That's right. That's exactly right. I was just going to say that her her very first expose for the world, well, she feigned madness. She pretended to be insane in order to get herself committed to the Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum for women so that she could experience firsthand the horrible conditions endured by the patients there. But as you say, it was extremely courageous because once she got in, it really wasn't clear that she was going to get back out. And it took all of Joseph Pulitzer's doing to get her back out once she was in. But she, she was in for 10 days and experienced all of the horrors of, of the asylum. And then when she got out, she wrote an expose that revealed what was going on inside there that caused a reform in the way that the asylum operated. That was the kind of, of thing she did. You know, she would go undercover to expose a corrupt lobbyist. She pretended to be a young mother to see if she could sell a baby on the black market. She, uh, she went to a medical dispensary for the poor where she narrowly escaped having her tonsils removed. Uh, you know, she was really, really an amazing, crusading, uh, socially conscious uh, journalist. But and then, we're talking about the 1880s, a in the time 1880s, when there was really nobody like her at that. Nobody time. like her, and women—it was shunned against for women to be journalists. I mean, the men—it was a male-dominated field, like everything else. And the women right. journalists that were out there were really just doing the fluffy stuff. Right. Well, there were there were more than twelve thousand journalists I discovered at that time in America. And of those twelve thousand, fewer than three hundred were women. And as you say, most of those women were working on what was called the women's page of the newspaper, where they were writing about the stuff that, you know, you know, newspaper editors thought women were most interested in. So they were writing about recipes, and they were writing about shopping, and, and the doings of high society, and gossip, and so forth. Nellie Bly adamantly refused to work on the women's page of the newspaper. In fact, she quit a newspaper when she was put on the women's page. She wanted to do hard news stories. Um, and kind of push herself as a reporter. And then in the fall of 1889, she set out on her most audacious adventure yet. Uh, she decided that she was going to go around the world faster than anyone ever had before her, that she was going to try to beat in real life the fictional mark of 80 days set by Phileas Fogg in Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days. She was going to go by herself, you know, unchaperoned by a man, speaking only English, and carrying only a single bag. And you know, over- you gave the measurements of the bag in your book. By the way, we're speaking to Matthew Goodman. He's the author of 80 Days, just released. It's the story of Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland's history-making race around the world. It was like 17 by 14 inches or something. I mean, my handbag is right. bigger <laughs> than that. And it I, happens, I was it happens that I was just in Washington, D.C., last weekend at, uh, at the museum, which is a museum of journalism in Washington, and I actually saw the bag, the, the actual bag, which they have on display, the leather bag that Nellie Bly took with her around the world, and it is tiny. I mean, it is much smaller than most of the carry-on bags that we all bring onto planes, you know. Uh, but in that bag, she carried, uh, you know, silk bodices and a tennis blazer and pens and paper and 
uh, underwear and handkerchiefs and everything she would need for an around-the-world trip. She was intent on showing that uh, women didn't need to carry around 11 steamer trunks, you know, when right. they were well, going. Right, well, and she also know. didn't want to be encumbered by steamer trunks. Right, she wanted to make sure she to go on a lightning it. trip. And, right. you know, right. and... And um, she didn't want to have to be checking bags or, you know, waiting for bags to, that were lost to catch up to her and so forth. She wanted to be efficient. Well, so let's she set get out to with the other bag. character in your story, Elizabeth Bislin. Now, I think what's interesting is they're both, they're both of their real names were Elizabeth. So they were That's both right. uh, both Elizabeth. Nellie Bly actually is a pen name where Elizabeth right. was using her real name. But uh, Elizabeth Bislin was like the complete opposite of uh-huh. Nellie. Because she grew up in a more, arist- uh, you know, uh, an aristocratic family, even though right. they were a poorer family. She grew up with more of the finer things, the Southern right. Belle. But she was also a very good reporter for the Cosmopolitan. You know what I found interesting, and I wondered wh- what your thoughts on this, is it was constantly commented on Elizabeth's beauty, mm-hmm. how she was like the most beautiful journalist in New York and no you know she whatever she did was she was always beautiful but when i look at the photos of both of them they look almost they look similar to me <laughs> you know i don't see i don't did you find in looking at pictures that uh, maybe beauty's judged in a different way today well i think that that's possible i, I, I mean i think that i mean it is striking that everyone who commented uh, on Bisland uh, you know, anyone who knew her couldn't help but remark about how beautiful she was. Uh, you know, she was tall and willowy and elegant and had this kind of light southern accent uh, and these kind of beautiful dark eyes. Um, and, you know, men fell in love with her instantly. Among them, Rudyard Kipling, you know, really fell hard for her, um, among others. But I think part of it was that she was such a lovely person. That, that she drew you into conversation. She, she, you know, she listened intently to you when you spoke to her as though you were the only person in the room. She, um, was incredibly erudite, incredibly, incredibly literary. She could talk about almost any subject. She wrote about a tremendously wide range, um, of subjects. You know, she, you know, she was someone who was a great believer in, in the, the joys and the power of literature. You know, she was somebody who had grown up on a ruined Louisiana plantation, ruined by the Civil War. One of the the battles of the Civil War was actually fought on her family's plantation and taught herself to read from the burned out, tattered copies of of Cervantes and Shakespeare that she found in the the burned out library of, of this plantation. She taught herself French while she churned butter so she could read Rousseau's Confessions in the original French. She was really a remarkable person. She was a poet. She was an essayist, um, but very, very different than Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly was from Pittsburgh originally. She was kind of scrappy. She was tough-talking. She was very ambitious. She was very driven. She sought out fame. Where, uh, where Elizabeth Bislin did not want fame. She didn't. No. She, she actually did not, although she looked forward, she went on this trip, Mm-hmm. In the last final hours, she wasn't anticipating and did not welcome any of no. the publicity where Nellie really wanted it. She Nellie sought it out. It was Nellie's sought it idea. Out. It was Nellie It Bly's. seems like Elizabeth Bisland really enjoyed this travel because, you know, many of her writings, I mean, she wanted to travel more, where Nellie was just going for the time. 
That's exactly right. They, you know, it was her, it was Nellie Bly's idea in the first place, and she had to fight for a year with the editors of the world to get her to to allow her to go because they said, "No, you can't go. We, you know, only a man can go." You know, in those days, male editors didn't want to send their female reporters across the city, much less around the world. And I know so that was amazing. That, that's yeah. really amazing. So, so, but she fought, and then you know, finally, you know, they allowed her to go, um, and she was desperate to win. You know, it was always a race for her, and she said several times, "I would rather die than return to New York behind time." Uh, for Elizabeth Bisland, she had no idea that she was going to do this. She got called that morning when the publisher of the Cosmopolitan read in the World newspaper that Nellie Bly had had done this. He instantly understood the publicity value of this scheme, and he decided, I'm going to send my own young female journalist out heading in the opposite direction to try to beat Nellie Bly back to New York. Um, you know, and she'll head west rather than, than east. So he called his, his young literary editor, Elizabeth Bislin, to his office, and you know, she got there about 11 o'clock in the morning, and he bade her a cordial good morning, and he said, now uh, I would like you to get on a railroad train tonight at 6 o'clock bound for San Francisco, and from there I would like you to proceed uh, all the way around the world. And if possible, I would like you to do this faster than anyone ever has in history before. And Elizabeth Bislin said, no, of course I'm not going to do What are you talking about? Of course I'm not going to do that. She had a tea the next day or several well, teas. Well, right. She said, I have people coming to the house. I don't have anything to wear. But the real reason, she admitted later, the, you know, the real reason was that she understood. She was very smart. And she cherished her anonymity and her quiet literary life. And she understood immediately the kind of notoriety and sensation that a trip like this would cause. And when she got back, you know, when the race was over and she got back to New York, she wrote that she wanted to live the rest of her life in such a way that her name would never again appear in a newspaper headline. You know, and that was really interesting because Nellie Bly just became... There was every kind of clothing and soap, and everything was Nellie Bly. People were naming their children Nellie Bly. Mm -hmm. How and how did this? Because when they first started doing all this, is this what really led to agents, etc., starting to capitalize on the names of celebrities and this get was them? The, right. This was really the dawning of the. Uh the age of celebrity, really, in America. You know, and this was the time that companies were first beginning to understand that if they associated their product with a particular celebrity, that the qualities associated with that celebrity would would be transferred, in a sense, to that product. Now, Nellie Bly, what, hap what happened with Nellie Bly during this race was that the world, which was the largest newspaper in, in the country, saw the publicity value of of the trip and so they were every day they were they were in the locution of the time they were booming her trip meaning that they were promoting her trip every day on the front page of the paper well you how know, about the contest that they ran well, and, that's, and, and that's that the was the that, biggest seller of all right about about two weeks in they hit on really a genius idea which they came up with the idea of the Nellie Bly guessing match, which was that they offered a free trip to Europe to the reader who guessed closest to the set, you know, down to the second of Nellie Bly's final time. Um, and what you had to do was to, of course, buy a copy of the world. 
because that you know the you know the uh, entry form was inside the copy well, it was inside the paper so you bought the paper and then you wrote down your name and your address and and your your guess and you sent it in and by the time the race was over the world had accumulated almost a million entries which means that you know that's a, a million copies of the paper sold so by the time the race was over, between the guessing match and the promotions and so forth, Nellie Bly was arguably the most famous woman in America, uh, perhaps even the most famous in the world. Um, well, so she we was, have, we're running out of time almost. We have a couple more minutes, but I want to give a, I do want to give your website out, MatthewGoodmanBooks.com, and the name of the book is 80 Days, and again, Matthew Goodman is the author. But back to uh, Nellie Bly, I mean, it really was um, is a genius idea on Pulitzer's and, of course, the the world newspaper to promote like this because they created... A, a, a complete new persona for her, except she wasn't able to do undercover wor- work anymore, was she? Well, that was part of the problem, was that she had really made her, her, her success as an undercover reporter. And part of the problem that happened as a result of this trip was that by the time the trip, the race was over, she was so famous, she was so well-known that she could no longer do this sort of undercover journalism that had brought her this success in the first place. So it was sort of a uh, a sad irony um, of this. She lived for, you know, what was it, another 32 years or so after, you know, after this whole adventure. One thing I found very interesting in the book is how she lied about her age and her height and everything. (laughs) I'll tell you truthfully, I'm only 22 when she was 25. (laughs) So it right. showed me that even in those days, there was a vanity going on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. She still had absolutely. to be younger. I mean, Nellie Bly prided herself on being, I mean, she was kind of tough talking and, and, you know, she was a regular at O'Rourke's Saloon on the Bowery, you know. But at the same time, she prided herself on dressing well and being ladylike and being attractive and being attractive to men, which she was, because she and also she was, had. And she was considered lovely as well. Well, Matthew, unfortunately, we are out of time, and this is a book that you could spend five shows on. It is a wonderful book, a fantastic read, and it's called 80 Days, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's History-Making Race Around the World. Matthew Goodman, the descriptions, Matthew, of the country she visited, especially Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, it sounded definitely sounded like Eden, like a paradise. Absolutely. It was just so so many things. It was so great. So thank you for joining us here today. Go to MatthewGoodmanBooks.com. Pick up a copy of 80 Days. Matthew, we'll look forward to the next one and enjoy the ride on this one because you really outdone yourself this time. Uh, thank great you, job. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you all for being great listeners and staying tuned to Star Style every week right here on World Talk Radio. And until we celebrate again next week, go out into the world and be the stars you are. And for more information about us, visit StarStyleRadio.com or go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for tuning in every week for the Power Hour on Star Style, Be The Star You Are. Our goal is to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to reach for the stars and shine brightly. For further information, visit www.StarStyleRadio.com. 
You're invited to our power party next week and every week right here on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel with the dynamic duo, the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, our health hero, Heather Brittany, and the pioneers on the planet. We'll pour more champagne for the spirit with positive, uplifting, life-changing radio. Until we play again, be the star you are. You are.